0: on local now channel five twenty
1: five. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
0: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. As promised, with me in studio today is Pastor Rich Jones from Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro. We're going to talk about the significance of Monday's embassy move to Jerusalem. As we discussed yesterday, the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem officially opened yesterday, and that coincided with the 70th anniversary of the creation of the modern state of Israel. And one day after Jerusalem Day, which is the 51st anniversary of Israel's annexing East Jerusalem, which is home to holy sites for Jews, for Christians, and for Christians. And for Muslims. Well, in moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the president followed through on a promise that was first made by the U.S. in 1995. Before yesterday's move, uh, president after president signed a waiver, citing national security concerns and giving in to the fear of Palestinians' response and the violence that would likely ensue. Well, the president did say that his declaration doesn't set the final borders of the city, but at the ceremony, his son in law, Jared Kushner, went even further saying that the U.S. stated policy is Jerusalem is the eternal, undivided capital of the Jewish people. Well, the conflict, Palestinians claim East Jerusalem as the capital of a future Palestinian state. And as a result, most of the world doesn't recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And we're going to take it up from there. Pastor Jones, I know that you um, are an expert in this uh, region of the world, certainly a biblical scholar, but also uh, the geopolitical implications of what's going on there Uh, and the biblical implications. So I'm so grateful that you're with us here today.
2: It's a great pleasure. This is a monumental day. And uh, something that's extremely important for us to fully understand.
0: And I think it's important to emphasize that the embassy in Tel Aviv—it's been something of what many have called an historic anomaly, an injustice. In that, Israel is the only nation, or at least was the only nation in the world, that's been barred from declaring where its own capital was. And as I mentioned, the U.S. Congress, by a huge bipartisan majority back in '95, approved what was called the Jerusalem Act, which called for the moving of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem in 1999. It also included. The waiver that has given presidents uh, Clinton, President uh, Bush, President Obama, um, the uh, the opportunity to waive mm. that uh, that opportunity,
2: although several of those presidents promised that they would Every, do it. Yes, all th- three of them. I think
0: Clinton did declare Jerusalem as Israel's capital. He didn't promise to move the embassy, but the other right. th-
2: others did. Well, and yeah, Bush did, Obama all yes. recognizing Jerusalem as the legitimate official uh, capital of Israel. Now, I think part of that history. Uh, goes all the way back to 1948 when the U.N. Uh, had tried to tackle the, quote, the Jewish-Israeli problem. And their suggestion was to partition uh, between the Arab people—we know them today as the Palestinian people—the Jewish people— in these various partitions, with Jerusalem being an international city. So that was actually the United Nations' original intent, was to have Jerusalem be an international city, a capital of no uh, nation. And that's the reason why that's been so controversial amongst the nations.
0: It's important to point out, too, that the Arab leaders at the time, they did not want to accept that partition. Their view was that this will not be an an Israeli nation. And so they opposed the, the notion of... Um, of cutting the country in half, if you will.
2: Well, and uh, of course, partition has a lot of definitions, but it wasn't just 1948 in the United Nations desire to partition. Again, they're trying to solve, quote, the Jewish problem or the Israeli problem. And it goes far back uh, be before then. Actually, it wasn't just 1948. This started to be a problem when the uh, Jews started to migrate, immigrate into that area and uh, it, it didn't really belong to anyone. We have to go all the way back even to when uh, the Turks, uh, act the Ottoman Empire, was the dominant power. They're not Arab at all, but they were the dominant power. And so uh, the, here come the Jews starting to come in masses now, trying to flee from anti-Semitism in Europe, which I want to point out is a very important issue mm-hmm. even today. Anti-Semitism is on the rise in Europe, frankly, it's on the rise in the world, and it's on the rise. You can go to any university today in America and ask them about their opinions about the uh, uh, Israeli-Palestinian issue, and I think many people would be shocked to find how much anti-Semitism there is, even in our own country. But this is going back to the history. And so the the Jewish immigration and the, the Aliyah that's mm-hmm. the name of the 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 word describing these Jews immigrating in. Uh, they became a greater and greater force, you might say, to be reckoned with. And the Arabs were greatly concerned, of course, that they're going to lose uh, the majority of their lands. And so all these protests and the conflict started to rise. So it goes way back yeah. before 1948.
0: Well, let's talk about what this move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Israel, uh, to Jerusalem, rather, Means for Israel and what it means for the region
2: the move of the united uh, uh, the the embassy is so significant, of course, because it it declares officially of course not just that Jerusalem is the capital but by recognizing it by moving the embassy it 's monumental uh, because of its significance now interestingly, other countries are now Coming along behind, you know, Paraguay, I think Uruguay are just some examples and others are going to be moving their embassies mm-hmm. as well. It recognizing it recognizes the obvious, you might say.
0: I mentioned earlier that it's it's rather peculiar that um, Israel is the only nation that hasn't had the, the freedom to declare its own capital. And because of reasons you've just explained. Right. So it's it's significant in that way as well. Historically,
2: it has unique uh, historical bearing because no other nation has faced what, what Israel is facing. I mean, they have this integrated Arab population. And so the conflict is is within, you might say. And it's very interesting um, to see this, this Israeli-Palestinian problem from all kinds of different perspectives. Because that's really the issue that we're facing today, is this Israeli-Palestinian problem. That is one of the largest issues that is facing this world. It has geopolitical implications. It has biblical prophetic implications. What we're seeing from the biblical view, um, of course, it depends, I suppose, on your view of the last days, but I see that this is very important prophetically as well. So what we're seeing is is monumental because it's recognizing the obvious, but the problem is within— and uh, one of the I think one of the ways you can measure or judge the character of a nation is how they handle the minorities, for example, when you look at uh Israel, they have a very large population of Arab minorities mm-hmm. uh and Christian and other Druze example uh, and others. how do they handle those minorities well they're given rights voting rights full citizenship rights uh they're welcome to integrate uh, they can choose if they wish to serve in the military they can get their education i mean they're integrated into society so they're welcomed and uh, for the jews they say this is an example of how the the jews and the arabs can live side by side it is possible now you go to the of uh, the palestinian Uh, uh, controlled areas, and how do they treat their minorities? The Christians are heavily persecuted, Jews are heavily persecuted, and anyone who is not uh, Arab or Islamic is heavily persecuted. So that is an important part of what's happening in that conflict of that region right now.
0: And we're going to continue our conversation, but I'm going to need to take a break here in just a moment. We're talking this afternoon with Pastor Rich Jones of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro, and we're talking about the significance of yesterday's embassy move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show and we'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
0: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Once again, we have Pastor Rich Jones with me in studio. He is the pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro. We're talking mm-hmm. about the significance of the move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you what impact this move is likely to have on the stalled peace process. I almost, I'm almost reluctant to even use the phrase because there really hasn't been any movement for quite some time. But uh, one of the threats that um, has caused presidents in the past— uh, to apply the waiver, is concerned that it's going to have a negative impact on the peace process.
2: Well, I, I think it will. I think that the the Palestinian uh, authorities, uh, I, I use that word very broadly, um, they see this as the United States moving from the middle clearly towards Israel, although, frankly, the United States has been a supporter of Israel since it's uh, uh, 1948, since they became a nation. But they see this as a major move of the United States away from the middle, and thus the Palestinian uh, population is convinced that this is a major obstacle towards any kind of progress towards peace. But the point you made earlier is that there really hasn't been any peace, and there is a very important reason for that. There has been no progress because there is one major obstacle. And I think if you could could address this one major obstacle— and uh, and be able to overcome it, then there would be the possibility of peace. And that one major obstacle is whether or not the Palestinian people would recognize Israel's right to exist as a nation. And so far, from the beginning of this Arab-Israeli conflict, that has never Ever been a possibility. And so every time it always stalls the peace process. Well,
0: let me ask you if that reflects the general population's view or if that's limited to terrorist groups like Hamas. I know that there was a coup and Hamas is, has far more influence than they were ever intended when the Palestinian mm-hmm. Authority began, although right. we could get into that history too. Sure. But is that the general view of the Palestinian people or does that reflect for the most part? Uh, The influence brokers like Hamas, which is a terrorist group recognized by not only Israel in the United States, but by the European Union.
2: Well, that is a a stance taken by all of the the Palestinian authorities, because there's clearly some Palestinians who don't recognize Mm -hmm. that view. But most, the vast majority of Palestinian Arab perspective is that exactly. They refuse to recognize Israel's right to exist now in Europe. The the nations of the European uh, community all recognize Israel's right to exist. Uh, now, I think we're having a a problem in Europe, which is of course the immigration problem is bringing anti-Semitism with them. That's another issue to be maybe discussing uh, later in this uh, show. But I think that the general Palestinian perspective, across the uh, uh, the official perspective of Palestinian authorities is that they refuse absolutely, digging in the hills, entrenched, absolutely refuse to recognize Israel uh, as a nation and their right to exist. Now, I want to say that it's not in reverse. What I mean by that is, Israel certainly would very much like a two-state solution. And I think many people don't recognize that. But Israel, from the beginning, has always believed that the answer to the Arab-Israeli conflict is a two-state solution, that the Palestinians would have their own territory and the uh, Israelis would have theirs, and that they would live in peace. That's the the Jewish desire. We want to live in peace. And in fact, they give, again, the examples of the Arabs within their borders. We can live with peace as long as we recognize each other's right to exist. So my point is that Israeli perspective we will recognize Palestinians' right to exist, we'll recognize them, we'll give them all full rights as a nation, absolutely no problem. But what we want in return is promises of peace, to be recognized as, as our right to exist, and, and secure borders.
0: I think that's reasonable. It is reasonable, but it's impossible to broker peace if one side is unwilling to acknowledge the right of the other side to exist
2: absolutely impossible it can that's why there has been no progress I mean I think that there have been attempts in the past for example uh, uh, there were attempts at exchanging land for peace that's how we got the the Gaza problem mm-hmm. that was the idea back in there and in fact um, what many people don't recognize was after 1967 uh, and the the war mm-hmm. by which Israel uh, obtained so much land That immediately following the victory of 1967, the Israeli parliament voted unanimously to give all of it back, all of it back, in exchange for peace, in exchange for being recognized as a right of a nation to exist. It was rejected outright. Now, a lot of people don't recognize that mm-hmm. part of history, but that's very significant. The parliament voted unanimously to give it all back.
0: I want to return to this notion of the United States being a neutral broker. We have spent billions of dollars supporting uh, Palestinians. Um, given the the history that we have in financially supporting and trying to undergird them and trying to act as a broker in, uh, in what we would hope would evolve into a peace talks, what is their view of the United States and the generosity that's been uh, demonstrated to support the, uh, the Palestinian Authority and the leadership there and the people?
2: Well, of course, the Palestinian uh, Authorities very much welcome the generosity uh, of the United States. And it has been going ongoing since 1948 mm-hmm. because the refugees, and I and hope we have time in our program to talk about the refugees, because the Palestinian refugee problem is one of the greatest problems facing. Uh, the world today, but I want us to understand how we got there. But the United States has been supporting the, the Palestinian refugees through the United Nations support. I don't know if many people recognize this, but the Palestinian refugees that are registered on the official list all receive a stipend uh, from the United Nations, which is of course paid for by the United States. Predominantly.
0: uh, Predominantly,
2: but there's other nations Uh too. Uh, That includes free education, free medical, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all supplied. So the United States has been a tremendous supporter of the Palestinian uh, the peoples. However, um, it has also been very clear that the United States supports Israel because they are, they are our greatest ally in that, in that uh, area. So we've seen years of concessions.
0: Uh, we've worked to build the Palestinian Authority into something capable of handling the levers of power that a state needs. Uh, needs to wheel to uh, come closer to peace, but we're no closer to peace because this one rather large issue that you mentioned a moment ago—the right of Israel to exist—has uh, remained unresolved.
2: Right, and then uh, you know I think that there's a phrase that we hear quite often, and that is "quote status quo," maintaining status quo, and and um, that is the recognition that we very likely are not going to make any progress towards peace. Therefore, the best thing we can accomplish or all that we can accomplish now is, quote, status quo, which means can we not work towards peace? Let's not have conflicts of armed uh, invasions. What's happening right now in Gaza is the opposite of that. It, the the Hamas, which is the, the, the majority, they're not the only uh, terrorists in Gaza— But they are the largest ones, and they are, of course, encouraging uh, their people to rise up in this protest that we've been following in the news um, to break through the border fence to invade Israel, and, and and they will absolutely bring destruction and mayhem if they are allowed to do this. And so that is not maintaining the status quo.
0: Yeah, yeah. In fact, there was a report earlier today, according to the Times of, uh, of Israel, Hamas warned its own members to stay away from the security fence during Gaza's mass protest, lest they get shot while actively encouraging Palestinian civilians, particularly children and teens, to approach the border. And if the fence is breached, However, armed Hamas uh, gunmen were poised to enter Israel to carry out attacks. And that's really the, the tactic. Um, Western journalists and intellectuals are moved by the images of, mm-hmm. of civilians being harmed, and they use that for mm-hmm. their benefit. Now, we don't have time to go into that much at this moment. But when we come back, I want to talk a bit about um, the refugees and how we got to this position where mm-hmm. there are Palestinians who are still, after 70 years, considered refugees. We'll get into that in just a moment. Okay. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Pastor Rich Jones, pastor of Calvary Chapel Hills, Hillsborough. We're talking about uh, the meaning of the move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Israel, which took place yesterday. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're back. Uh, my guest is Pastor Rich Jones, pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsborough. Let's talk about the refugee problem. Um, in uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, the Israelis were themselves refugees at one point. The Palestinians are now refugees. How did we get here?
2: Well, that is a long history. A short question, long answer. Yeah, um, it really goes back to who owned that land, because I think that's a very important question. Uh, who had the prior claim? Uh, because I think the 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 um, Jewish claim goes all the way back to the promises to Abraham, where when Abraham was called out of Ur of Chaldees and called to that land of Canaan, which we know as is Israel, uh, God made that promise to Abraham, I give this land to you and your descendants, you know, forever. So that would be the earliest claim that Israel would have to that land, Abraham. The uh Arab claim to that land would come after, the course, the Arabs. There were Arabs that lived in that area when it was in the Ottoman Empire. And so the Arabs did not control it, because if you remember from history, Ottomans are not uh, Arabs. They're Turks. And so that area was controlled by the, the Ottomans. And then World War One came. When World War One came, then uh, England uh, actually was able to— uh, to defeat the Ottoman Empire through World War One, and now they have the control over the area, and authorized by the League of Nations, that which was before the United Nations, mm-hmm. and under what is we now known as the British Mandate. The British Mandate gave the Britain government authority over this. So now they're trying to manage this problem, that's getting greater and greater and greater. The Arabs and the Jews are in greater conflict because the Jews are trying to flee anti-Semitism from Europe and Eastern Europe, and they're coming literally by the hundreds of thousands. And the Arabs are greatly concerned now because these numbers are such that they're going to become perhaps the majority. And uh, so the Arabs start arising and attacking, and there's a lot to say about how these conflicts continue to increase leading up to 1948, because after World War Two, and as we know, the, the, the Holocaust brought tremendous cries for a nation. Is there not a place for Israel to have you know, a homeland? And Of course, the natural thought is the, the historic homeland that they've had you know, 2,000 years before. And, uh, and so here now, the nations are supporting the idea of Israel having a homeland with all the anti-Semitism that's arising. So uh, the United Nations at one point took up the, the mantle, took up the problem, and their recommendation was partition. So we're going to have uh, Jewish areas, we're going to have uh, Arab areas, and they were not you know, clear, clean lines. It was a complicated uh, answer, Jerusalem being an international city, but there were borders, recommended borders. So the uh, Jewish people, taking that recommendation on May fourteenth, nineteen 1948, which we're just now celebrating the 70th anniversary of, they took that opportunity to declare the, in, you know, that they are now a nation again after all of these years. Now the the Arab nations, of course, objected tremendously to this, and even their, to
0: the partition,
2: to the partition plan, particularly the idea that Arab, uh, that uh, Israel would have a nation. And so uh, they decided that they were going to attack. Six Arab nations attacked. Um, the moment that Israel declared that they would be a nation, these nations declared war. Now, I think it's important to note, if we can just kind of put a pause in history there for a moment, that the Arab authorities could have, if they so chose, they could have done the same thing that Israel did. So Israel, on May 14, 1948, they said, we are now a nation, and we will recognize those borders that the United Nations recommended. So they just adopted those borders. Now, what? imagine, what would have happened had the Arab people said, we also recognize those borders, and we also declare ourselves a nation in the land remaining. May we live in peace. Now, just imagine, Uh, okay, now we're just...
0: You and I wouldn't be having this conversation. We wouldn't
2: have this conversation, but imagine that for a moment, because Uh, if you go to those borders, uh, the Arabs would have had 90% of the land. Okay, that partition was so unbalanced and so not fair to the Jews that the Arab people would have had like 90% of that land. If they just would have recognized themselves, Arab Palestinians, as a nation, this problem would not exist today. But that wasn't the first opportunity. You go back from 1900, let's say, to 1948, there actually were multiple opportunities uh, under the British mandate. They put together a variety of different commissions trying to deal with this problem. One was the famous Peel Commission, and the Peel Commission decided the best answer is partition. And so they came up with a plan, and they put forth this idea. Let's partition this idea, Uh, this land, some for the Jews, some for the Arabs. And uh, the Arabs absolutely rejected it outright. Again, um, there's an old saying that they never miss an opportunity, to miss an opportunity. And because there have been so many. Imagine 1948 if they just would have declared themselves a nation. And we, we recognize Israel's right to exist. We have our own nation now. And Jerusalem will be an international city, done. But that's not what happened. What happened was the six Arab nations declared war. Now, what's important to recognize is they fully believed that they were going to annihilate Israel. This was not just a war to defeat or control. No, total annihilation was their goal. And so they wanted to minimize the Arab casualties in the war field And so they instructed Palestinian Arabs living in those war zones to remove themselves into these temporary camps, thinking that they were only going to be there for, you know, a number of weeks or months, perhaps, because no one in their right mind thought that Israel was actually going to survive, let alone win and take more territory. And so these these nations instructed these Palestinian Arabs to remove themselves, to go to these Palestinian Arab camps. They weren't called refugee camps at the time. They were just temporary uh, camps. Uh, West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon, Gaza area predominantly. And then, of course, we know the history unfolds. Uh, Israel amazingly survives, not just survives, Defeats, takes more land, uh, and, and so now the refugee problem is now fixed because they're not, they were enemies, right? They're not just going to be welcomed back. They declared themselves to be enemies. So that's one of the major contributors to how we got this Palestinian problem. The other factor, and I think it's important to kind of balance um, the narrative because if you listen to uh, the Palestinian narrative, they will say, the Arabs kicked them out. The Jews kicked them out. The Jews mm-hmm. kicked out the Arabs into these refugee camps. That's how we got this problem. That actually is partially true, but only partially true. Well, what happened was uh, was that the Jewish army, Israeli army, would come upon an Arab village. If that Arab village uh, did not take up arms, they said, we have no intention of, of fighting or resisting you, then they were just... Uh, absorbed into the nation of Israel, given citizen rights, uh, allowed to continue at peace, no problem. But if an if a, a Arab village took up arms and actually fought Israel's army, then they displaced them, of course, because you cannot have an enemy armed within your borders. And th- thus they displaced them into the Palestinian areas. Now there's another Reason that we have the Palestinians. We'll deal with that, I guess, in a minute. You're waving at me.
0: Okay. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back again. Pastor Ritz Jones is my guest. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Hillsboro. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking about the significance of Monday's embassy move to Jerusalem. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking with Pastor Rich Jones, pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro. We're talking about the significance of the U.S. Embassy moving from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and we were talking about how we got the refugee crisis just before the break. So I want to just encourage you to continue where you left off.
2: Well, just in brief summary, so the, the, the reasons we've so far, delineated for how we got to this Palestinian problem. Number one, the Arab nations did not want Arab casualties, and so they instructed Palestinian Arabs living in the war zone to remove themselves into these camps, not thinking that they were going to be there very long, just temporarily, and then they will be brought back. After Israel is defeated, they will get their land back, they will get their homes back, and they will have the land of the Jews next to them. They're going to get all the spoils of the war. On that promise, many Arabs removed themselves. I'm saying hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. Uh, a- another issue then came when the Israeli army now is moving village by village. If a village, uh, Arab village takes up arms and is fighting the Jewish army, then they, the Jewish army would defeat and displace, because you cannot have an armed enemy within your borders. Now, the third reason we were getting to just before yes. the break... And that is that the Palestinians were convinced in their minds that if Israel wins, that they would do to the Palestinians what the Palestinians had planned to do to them, total annihilation. Therefore, let's say that uh, it was obvious now that the Jewish army, the Israeli army, was going to defeat a particular area. Then it was very common for that area to flee in advance, fearing total annihilation, but that was never Israel's intent. That they would flee in mass, thinking that they'd be annihilated. There were other examples of where Israel would, let's say, defeat a a, a city, and the 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 Palestinian Arabs began or started to indicate they were going to flee. The Jewish army then would come and say, "Don't, please, don't flee. We we can have peace." let let 's work together on this let's let 's resolve these issues and let's don't flee nevertheless the the uh, Palestinian leadership said, "No, you flee and uh, so that 's how we got so the The Palestinian refugees at the end of nineteen forty eight war leading into nineteen forty nine was probably in the area of seven to eight hundred thousand today we have something like two point four two point five million. Um, but all of them are officially registered. They receive support from the United Nations, school, medical, et cetera. So that's a brief history of mm-hmm. how we got here. And by the way, if, if, if you don't mind, I think it's kind of worth noting, how is it even possible that Israel won that war? It was utterly miraculous. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And, and I think it's important to note like several factors because the United States wasn't the reason. To our shame, now when uh, Israel declared themselves a nation, David Ben Gurion stood, you know, on the radio in nineteen May fourteenth, nineteen forty-eight, twenty-two, just before the Sabbath. Um, the United States was the first. President Harry Truman made a point of saying to his staff, "You alert me at whatever hour it is that I can be the first to recognize Arab, or excuse me, uh, recognize Israel as a nation." And so, in fact, they alerted him at something like 5 in the morning or something like this, and he uh, proceeded down to the to the White House, made a declaration, and thus the United States was the first. It was later confirmed, uh, of course, officially by the other government officials, but he was the first to declare mm-hmm. it. Interestingly, the second, USSR, mm-hmm. Soviet Union. Very, very interesting. At the beginning, uh, in during 1948... When the United Nations was tackling this uh, uh, problem, Soviet Union was for the partition plan and was a supporter of Israel. It wasn't until later when Israel made it very clear that they were going to be a westernized nation and thus align themselves with westernized non-communist countries did they then reject them. But at the beginning, they were supporting So back to this question, how is it possible? Yes, we can say a miracle, but are there any sort of explanations that we can get our hands around? And the answer is yes. Two significant major reasons. Uh, The the number one major reason is because now Jews from all over Europe can freely immigrate. Because if you remember, during that period of time, between when the British had the control up to May 14, 1948, during that British mandate period to try to appease the Arabs, to try to, you know, somehow bring some kind of balance to the thing, uh, the the British government restricted immigration of Jews. Tremendous restriction. They had to come in illegally at times. And while anti-Semitism is raging through Europe, Britain government, British government is restricting Aliyah, mm-hmm. the, the movement of Jews. It's just tragedy when you think about what they... Even during the Holocaust. I mean, millions of Jews are being slaughtered in Europe, and yet Britain is restricting immigration into uh, Palestinian areas. Just unthinkable. Now, May 14, 1948, the British blockade is finished. The restrictions are over. And now uh, uh, Jews from around the world are freely immigrating by the tens of thousands, a month. And so many of these are trained soldiers who fought in the war, who won an opportunity to fight alongside their brothers. Mm. And so now the, 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 the Israeli defense forces are enlarging every single month as this Aliyah, as these Jews come from around the world. That's one, probably perhaps the most significant, but if it wasn't for the second reason, they still would never have survived and that's Czechoslovakia. So hey, What in the world does Czechoslovakia have to do with this? The answer is, they, amongst all the nations in the world, they and they alone, they stood alone in this. We are going to provide arms. Without Czechoslovakia, they said later, we would never have survived. And so Czechoslovakia, they shipped tanks, uh, an old, outdated Air Force, but they sent planes. Uh, they sent uh, ammunition. On and on and on Czechoslovakia provided now the Jews recognized that and thanked them tremendously for that. Now they paid for it, they paid sometimes exorbitant prices, but they didn't care. They had they to had survive. To have it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Czechoslovakia. Now later, Czechoslovakia under um a Soviet pressure reversed course. But at that point, nineteen forty eight, Czechoslovakia saved them.
0: Now, given the history that you've just explained, it still seems like it's impossible for there to be a peace brokered between the Arab Palestinians in the region and Israel. One of the questions that I often hear is, why didn't the Arab nations that oppose the existence of the nation of Israel simply absorb the Palestinian Arabs in the region if there was a genuine concern about their welfare and uh, a desire to see to it that they um, would get what they needed?
2: That's a absolutely excellent question what is or what was the motive of those arab nations in even attacking israel was it to create an arab nation so that the palestinian arabs could have their own was that their motive absolutely not it's important to recognize what the motive of those arab nations was their motive was to enlarge their own borders and so when when uh, egypt for example Uh, joined that coalition, their intent was to make Egypt larger. It wasn't to create an Arab state. When uh, Lebanon or Syria, now Iraq, they were not going to enlarge their borders because they have no shared border. Mm -hmm. But their point was just simply annihilation, was not to create an Arab state. Jordan, same motive, just to extend as far possible, even to the sea. So everyone now, all these Arab nations are scrambling to see who can take more to uh, to um, uh, you know expand their own borders. And so that motive is very, very important because that brings us to the motive of these Palestinians. Why don't they absorb them? Was it their intent all along to do what's best for the Palestinian Arabs? No, it was never that intent. It was to expand their own borders. 1967 war, by the way, same motive. 1967, the, the motive of that war was not to create a Palestinian state. That wasn't it either. Same idea. Enlarge their borders. And in fact, that's exactly what they did. They attempted, they pushed inland and declared, we just now annexed, you know, Jordan annexed the West mm-hmm. Bank. Well, that's proof positive. That's what their motive was to to just expand their borders. So now we see these Palestinians. Well, why don't we just absorb them? Because they're important right now to continue this conflict. This conflict must continue so as to have an anti-Semitic reason for the conflict.
0: We're going to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Pastor Rich Jones of Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro. We're going to continue our conversation into the next hour, so stay with us. Again, we're focusing our attention on what happened Monday in Jerusalem as the United States moved its embassy uh, from Tel Aviv into Jerusalem. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
0: Good afternoon and welcome back you're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We're continuing a conversation we began at the top of the first hour of today's program with me in studio is Pastor Rich Jones of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro and we're talking about events in uh, Israel, where the United States moved its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, its broader implications, and what this means looking forward now, one of the things I want to talk about is iran it wasn't just, uh, It was just a few days ago that Iran was lobbing missiles into Israel. Israel answered very soundly back. Uh, iran is playing a significant role in the region Israel has made, the, made it plain that they will not tolerate. Um, uh, Iran having foothold in Syria, mm-hmm. uh, right across their border, because they know what Iran's uh, intentions are. We mm-hmm. know that they support Hezbollah. And what I'm reading is Hezbollah has more than 150,000 rockets and missiles in the north along the Lebanon border. Mm-hmm. Then you've got Hamas along the, in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you really are talking about three fronts where Israel would have to face an enemy. Let's talk about the role that Iran is playing in this region to um, upset the apple cart, if you will, mm-hmm. and to challenge Israel's existence.
2: Let's go back just a little bit um, to when uh, our president made the declaration that the United States is moving their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Let's go back to that point because Iran plays into that, and and here's why. I think that it was anticipated that there would be a mass outcry of all the Arab nations. There would be mass—I mean, this would unleash uh, such turmoil in the world that no president— that's why every president was afraid to do mm-hmm. it— because of the possible consequences. But Iran plays into it, and here's why. Uh, Saudi Arabia and others virtually were silent, made some comments, some statements, but nothing of any serious consequences when the United States made that declaration that the United States embassy was going to be moved. Why? Why was Saudi Arabia and others aligned so silent? Why was there not the issue that everyone expected? Here's why. Because Saudi Arabia and others recognize Israel's role in containing Iran. Because Iran is the upsetter of the apple cart, not Israel. And so Saudi Arabia recognizes that Israel is, frankly, the best one to deal with Iran, mm-hmm. which is now what we're seeing because Israel is not afraid to, to reign terror. Uh, that's not the right word. But to rain a response of great strength back against Iran, Um, You know, uh, a week or so ago when the Israeli Army, uh, excuse me, the Israeli Air Force struck those caches of arms, there was actually an earthquake. I think it was like 2.5, 3.0 on the Richter scale earthquake that happened because they sent a bunker bomb uh, into that cache of arms, and it was so much uh, armament in that storage that it actually created an earthquake. That's how much Iran was building up. And so they are the ones upsetting the apple cart and Israel is not afraid to take them on. But they are a major player in what's happening right now.
0: I know one of the things that, uh, one of the motivations for Iran in Syria is to have um, a place that close to Israel's border, which, again, Israel is not willing to tolerate. Now, Iran is not only supporting Hezbollah. They're also supporting Hamas, which is in the, the, Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip. What does Iran essentially want to do? Expansion of its border, the annihilation of Israel. What's its primary motive in this
2: region? Yeah, its primary motive is no secret. I mean, they make it very, very clear, and that is the complete and total annihilation of Israel. And the the reason why they want nuclear uh, capability is for one simple reason, and that is to annihilate Israel completely, 100%. They make no uh, qualms about stating it blatantly. And so, yes, they're backing uh, Hezbollah. And the consequences to that are devastating, by the way. I was just in uh, Israel a couple of months ago, and um, we had with us a colonel of the IDF who brought us up to the northern border of Israel, and we actually could see Hezbollah from right where we were. And it's a fascinating view, because you are standing on this border, and you, we were up on a on a hill where we could see both sides very clearly. And on the Jewish side, you're seeing kiwi groves and uh, you know all kinds of of fruit being grown and just vibrant farming going on. And then you look to the other side where Hamas is, and you see poppy fields with the growing drugs Hmm. and a lack of of any kind of production, of of poverty. Uh, And and you see the the contrast between them. The the intent is not to do anything productive, but rather just to raise money through illegal drugs so as to support this war against Israel. And Hamas, I forgot the number you stated, but they are amassing uh, uh, missiles because they know that's the only way to defeat that Iron Dome. The Iron Dome, of course, is the, the Israeli high-tech way of shooting down missiles as they come. But they can be overwhelmed by sheer numbers. And therefore, uh, this is Hezbollah's plan, all backed by Iran. And of course, that's in Lebanon. Then in Syria... Uh, Iran's presence is just straightforward. I mean, they just have Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard commanders and soldiers right there building up cachet of arms right on the border. And Israel says, we will not tolerate that. And then, of course, they're supporters of, of Hamas, which is in Gaza uh, as well. Fortunately, Jordan is more allied with the United States and is staying out of this. Uh, so, And also now Egypt is more allied mm-hmm. with the United States and is staying out of it. So Iran is the factor to deal with right now.
0: Now, the United States just withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal, as it was so called. Um, how significant was that in this conflict? I mean, obviously, Iran was very much opposed to the United States stepping away from that agreement, sure, which sure. was not a treaty. It was not really essentially an executive order. It Iran had never actually signed it. Um, But did that play into uh, its heightened offense against Israel in the the hours following that uh, announcement?
2: Well, you know, that uh, Iranian deal, I don't believe that our Congress has ever approved of that, by the way. And I don't know that it was ever officially an executive order. So I'm not sure
0: what it was. (laughs) Exactly.
2: How how do you define that thing? Um, But it certainly was significant, um, at least... The Iranian people believed it to be significant, but it really did not stop Iran from no. getting the, the bomb. It only, quote, slowed them down. Then, if you re- remember in the news just a, a week or two ago, where Israel, in an amazing uh, revelation of uh, inter- intellectual property, you might say, gained access to uh, what's actually happening in Iran and revealed to the world that they're uh, not abiding by the terms in any
0: yeah, their nuclear program has continued.
2: Absolutely. And so, again, their intent is to, is to destroy Israel. And, and so this is only—the United States pulling out of that is just, it just adds, you might say, fuel to the fire to support uh, Iran's uh, rationale for defeating Israel. What they're saying is they're just doubling down on their intent to develop nuclear arms. But that's no surprise to anybody. They've been doing that all along. So it really it just recognizes the obvious, in my view. That I'm saying when the United States pulls out of that, it just recognizes the obvious. They're not even abiding by it.
0: Yeah. Now, I want to go back to the Palestinian Authority and the role that Hamas is playing there. My understanding was that there had been a coup, and while the Palestinian Authority was the recognized leadership over um, the Palestinian people, um, Hamas has really stepped in as a a recognized terrorist organization, and they really— Pull the and hold the levers of power at this point,
2: absolutely, and their intent is no negotiations, uh, absolutely no negotiations whatsoever. Their intent is to destroy Israel at any uh, point they can. These terror tunnels that uh, have been uh, been built are now Israel by the way has developed some high tech ability to detect these uh, ter- uh, terror tunnels. I was just there, and we went down to Hamas actually, and uh, saw that uh, all of their cranes and tractors and excavators are are moving now to strengthen the border with Hamas. The entire 400 miles are going to be strengthened by the border, including uh, high technology that's going down into the ground hundreds of feet to detect these terror tunnels. Hamas is, of course— aligned with Iran mm-hmm. and they did have an internal struggle with the Palestinian authority, but their roots are terrorists and their intent is complete destruction of Israel. They are to be reckoned with, um, because they are supported. They have a lot of arms and they have a lot of financial backing. Yeah. Uh, which is an amazing thing. And you know what they don't do with their money? I mean, you would think that all this money could be used to build hospitals, build schools, develop the infrastructure. Um, None of that is true. Instead, they take the money and they build terror tunnels.
0: To defeat Israel. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest, Pastor Ritz Jones, Calvary Chapel Hillsboro. We're talking about events in uh, Israel. We're going to shift our conversation in a few moments as well to the biblical implications of some of the events that have taken place most recently. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With me in studio today, Pastor Rich Jones, Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro. Well, let me ask you, what, if anything, do the scriptures have to say about the ongoing conflicts uh, in the nation of Israel and the nations that either support or oppose uh, their right to exist?
2: Well, that's absolutely a great question, and it would take a long time to thoroughly answer that. So let's just kind of touch on it, because I think it really is important uh, and I think let's start with this question, why should the United States support Israel, not just geopolitically, but is there a biblical reason? I think that's mm-hmm. what you were saying. Yes. And uh, that biblical reason really begins with Genesis 12, where uh, God said to Abraham, this, all these promises of give this land to you and your descendants, um, where he then said, those who bless you, I will bless and those who curse you, I will curse. And I'm convinced that that promise given to Abraham is thus extended to Isaac and to Jacob. The tribes of Israel and thus Israel today are recipients of that promise. And therefore, extending that to our modern times, I'm convinced that that promise and others like it um, are the biblical substantive reasons why the United States should back Israel, biblically, and it should inform our foreign policy, because I'm convinced that the United States is blessed when we stand with Israel. I'm talking about from the biblical perspective. There's plenty of geopolitical reasons, mm-hmm. but biblically, that's why Christians, I'm convinced, should stand with Israel.
0: I know one of the things that I hear from um, Christians who are concerned about Palestinians is that Israel, if it behaves in a way that we cannot support, if they... Um, if they respond in a way that, that we find objectionable, does that mean that God's support of Israel wavers? Um, is God's uh, mandate to support Israel based on Israel's goodness or based on um, what God has uh, has declared them to be?
2: Yes, that's a great question. Because uh, I'm convinced that Israel does things that um, we may not necessarily agree with. And I'll give you an example of that. And that is the, the settlements in East Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And beyond the the areas of East Jerusalem, because we were there, as I said, just recently, and we we uh, uh, drove through and saw some of these um, communities, these settlements that are being built. And I personally disagree. I don't believe that Israel should be building in these areas. That should there be any kind of partition settlement, so that there is the, the recognition of Palestinian nation, those areas by all rights should belong to the Palestinians. Now, Israel responds to that by saying, well, we welcome Arabs within our borders. Why can't they welcome Jews within their borders should we partition the Mm -hmm. land to let them have that? Why can't there be Jews living in their borders at peace? We have Arabs living in our borders. Now, that's a reasonable argument. I still do not agree So does that mean that we should reject Israel because they do things that we disagree with? No, I don't believe so. A, biblically, we stand with Israel. But I think, B, um, let's say that we're the big brother to Israel. Because we are in a family of nations, but we are so closely aligned that should there be something that happens we disagree with, frankly, we can bring tremendous pressure to, to bear against Israel, and thus we should. People in relationships stand up and say honest things. And I think that that's exactly what the United States should happen. Don't reject, you confront. Uh, but biblically, we stand, and that the scriptures don't change. God hasn't changed his heart. His com- commitment to Israel is everlasting, and thus we should be committed. Now, I think other Christians might say, well, why should we support him? They don't even believe Jesus is the Messiah, which I think is a, another excellent question. Mm-hmm. Uh and my answer to that is, they don't yet recognize Jesus as a Messiah, but they will. And that plays into your question that you started the segment, which is, what is the biblical significance of what's happening? See, when I see what's happening in the world today, this is like monumental. I don't think this has ever been done in the history of the world, that a nation that has been displaced out of their homeland 2,000 years later comes back to that homeland speaking in their native tongue— um, this has never happened in the history no, of the world. It hasn't. And I uh, am convinced that it has biblical implications. Because if you look at Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Revelation, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of these, Zechariah, all of these prophecies indicate that Israel will be the center and Jerusalem will be the epicenter of the latter-day events that are going to be unfolding in the world And we are seeing the signs of the times that Jesus referred to in Matthew 24. Frankly, many Christians with any kind of spiritual discernment look at what's happening in the world today and can sense there is an evil that's rising. There is a cloud, a storm cloud, that's rising in this world. There's a greater and greater evil that's rising that many people can thus attribute to the signs of the times. We are living in those latter days. And thus Israel becomes key to the revealing of what will happen in the latter days, because it has everything to do with the Antichrist. Now, that's a big topic, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, do we have enough time in this segment to deal with that? Probably not. Well, oh, if you no. want to just briefly, <laughs> briefly explain a little bit about it. Well, the Antichrist, when he arises, will be able to do what no man has been able to do, to bring peace to the Middle East. I'll just leave that as a teaser, and we'll come back to it.
0: Mm. Let me ask you about the Palestinian Christians, because that's another concern that a lot of uh, believers have. If we support Israel and its right to exist, are we rejecting or turning our backs on Palestinian Christians who face uh, persecution on their own uh, from their Arab neighbors in the Palestinian territories?
2: That is an absolutely excellent question, because the view of Palestinian Christians is, is absolutely essential for us to understand. Um, do they support, for example, this move uh, of the embassy to Jerusalem? Some do, some don't. There is some conflict between them because the, even the Christians in the Palestinian areas uh, would very much like to see um, you know, East Jerusalem be given to the, the quote, the Palestinian areas. Uh, nevertheless, there's a tremendous amount of persecution against Palestinian Christians within Palestinian territories. And when I was there in Israel just a, a couple of months ago, we had an opportunity to speak with some Palestinian Christians and get their perspective on this. And and I think that one of the things that they see is the United States' role as the broker is absolutely essential because their uh, destiny, their future, frankly, is at risk. What will happen when the Palestinian Authority has full and complete control? Because right now— these Palestinian authority areas where they have, quote, authority, Israel is actually the layer of security over all of the Palestinian areas. I don't know if everybody recognizes explain that. Explain
0: what you mean by that.
2: Okay, well, let's separate the West Bank areas mm-hmm. from Gaza. So in the Gaza area, you have Hamas and other terrorists who have total and complete control. Israel, nevertheless, controls the borders— and that includes also the ocean. So they have a blockade to prevent the the bringing in of arms. So Israel has a layer of security, let's say, even though you have all this authority, Hamas and others within, you have uh, Israel providing the layer of security around it. Now let's go to the West Bank where you have the, quote, Palestinian Authority as the major broker of, of, of uh, official government there. They have the right to police, they have the right to tax, they have the right to create business and schools, etc. But over all of that is the layer of Israel's security. Even in Jerusalem, where you have the Temple Mount, which is where of uh, course the Al-Aqsa Mosque mm-hmm. and the Dome of the Rock, those are Muslim religious sites. Jew, uh, Israel controls the security of those sites. And even though they're designated international, really Muslim, nevertheless, Israel controls the security. That's what I mean. Yeah. They control the security layer over.
0: So how can we support uh, Palestinian Christians, or can we, given the current conflict in the region? It's difficult,
2: because they are oppressed heavily by the Palestinian Authority. Well, let's go to Gaza, for example. In Gaza, there's just plain out persecution. Uh, Any Christians that remain there are under heavy, heavy persecution and at great danger. Um, in the Palestinian West Bank areas, there is a tremendous exodus. If you were to look at the numbers of Christians, Christians used to be the majority of the population of Bethlehem mm-hmm. for many years. Um, no, no longer, because they're, they're trying to, uh, to get out and to uh, ask for asylum because they're under tremendous persecution. And this is true in many of the Arab nations, by the way. It's not just those Palestinian areas. But Christians are being persecuted around this world like never before. we've never seen before. And I think Christians need to be alert to what's happening in the world right now.
0: We're going to continue our conversation, but do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Pastor Rich Jones. We're talking about what's happening in Israel and the region. Pastor Jones is uh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro, and we'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
0: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Pastor Rich Jones, Calvary Chapel Hillsboro, and we're continuing our conversation in light of the decision made by the president and the move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv. To Jerusalem, I want to talk about a couple of things in this segment. One, you touched on just a few minutes ago, and that is the role of the Antichrist. And right. then I'd also like to talk about when Israel will recognize Jesus. I know that's a, a major concern for Christians for right. a variety of reasons. Certainly, that the Messiah would be known by his uh, his people in Israel. So let's start with the Antichrist and the role that he will play as we are watching events unfold.
2: And the conflict that we're seeing in the Middle East has everything to do with the revealing of the Antichrist, because the Scriptures tell us that the Antichrist will appear as a man of peace. By all appearances, he will be a genius of diplomacy, which is antithetical to what we think, because he's, as Scripture tells us in book of Revelation, he's inspired by the Satan himself. Why would he then appear as a broker of peace, as a genius of diplomacy? Well, the Scripture says that even Satan himself appears as an angel of mm-hmm, light. That's right. So it's part of the deception. So to win the support, of course, and the, the acclaim of the world he will arise and be able to negotiate a covenant of peace, Daniel tells us. And uh, that covenant of peace between Israel and the nations will mark the beginning of the tribulation. But I'm convinced that part of that covenant of peace will be an allowance to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And in fact, when you go to Jerusalem, one of the Things you uh, hopefully get to do is to go to the Temple Institute, where they are actually creating all of the implements necessary to have a real active um, temple. And they even believe they—they uh, they say they know where the Ark of the Covenant is. They're very sort of uh, um, nondescript about yeah. that, but they vague say and we mysterious. know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, vague and, but we know where it is. Nevertheless, um, an allowance. To rebuild the temple, I'm convinced, is part of that covenant of peace. Now, what happens then uh, is that three and a half years later, which is about the time it would take to rebuild the temple, the Antichrist will betray Israel and take the cov- uh, take the temple back, and actually will set up a uh, an image to be worshipped image of himself to be worshipped there in the Holy of Holies. Now, this is the offense of offenses. As you can just imagine how Israel is going to respond to this. How do they respond to any offense? They respond with strength. They're going to do the same thing. But that's the point. The Antichrist then will have a rationale or reason for war. uh, And thus there's a great war in the middle of the tribulation period that will culminate, of course, in the battle of Armageddon, At the end of the tribulation period. At that is the point when the the Messiah, Yeshua Hamashiach, Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, will appear at the end of the tribulation period. He'll set foot of the Mount of Olives. By the way, that's where he ascended from. And he will enter into Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate. That's a whole other story yeah. because the, the Muslims have put a cemetery there thinking that a holy man <laughs> won't go through it. But the mountain will split in two. He'll enter Jerusalem, and he will set up his throne in Jerusalem to rule and reign uh, over the nations. And then Israel will recognize their Messiah. Now, it's really interesting. Um, I was, when I was in Israel a couple of months ago, we had an opportunity to have dinner with the Jewish rabbi. Uh, I was with some other pastors, and while we, were, while we were there, it was like an opportunity. You don't get an opportunity to have dinner with a Jewish rabbi every day. In Israel, especially. In Israel, <laughs> in Jerusalem. Uh, and so we're there, and uh, one of the pastors said, Why is it that you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah? Now, that is just a great question. And so his answer, I thought, was well thought out. And... Uh, a good, It was a good answer. He said, because when the Messiah comes, the Scripture says that the Messiah will defeat the enemies of Israel. This Jesus did not do. Thus, we don't believe that he was the Messiah, because he did not defeat the enemies of Israel. Hmm. Then he adds, now, I know you Christians believe that Jesus will come again at the end of the age. So I, I recognize that you believe that. So then my question was so do you believe then that when the messiah comes at the end of the age do you believe that he will fulfill at that time isaiah 53 now any christians that are not familiar with isaiah 53 needs to be they need to be familiar with it because frankly it is one of the most amazing prophetic uh, prophecies rather of scripture Uh, of the Messiah and the suffering that he will do when he arrives. So I, I said to him, do you believe then that when he comes, that he will then fulfill Isaiah 53? Can I just read a couple of verses? Yes, please. It says, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Do you believe that he will then fulfill that? And the rabbi thought for a long, long time and said, I don't know. Hmm. In fact, Jews have a really difficult time with Isaiah 53. Mm -hmm. You cannot understand Isaiah 53 if the Messiah only comes at the end of the age. Because when he says that the prophecies say that the Messiah is going to defeat the enemies of Israel. He's correct. I mentioned that at the end of the uh, tribulation period, when the Messiah comes, he will defeat the, the, at the battle of Armageddon, Antichrist and all of his, uh, uh, armies that come with him from the nations. That's true. He will, but he's referring to Zechariah 12, where it says that he will set foot on the Mount of Olives. He will enter Jerusalem. I mentioned this. He will defeat the armies and, and, uh, but it also says this in Zechariah 12. It says that he will appear to his people, Israel. And then they will say, it says, mm. they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn like would one would mourn for an only son. But I love where it then adds, but he will pour out the spirit of grace upon them and the spirit of supplication, the forgiveness that he paid for through the blood that was shed on Calvary that day is extended to Israel as they're brought together. The two shall become one, as uh, uh, Paul describes Jew and Christian, coming under the banner of Jesus Christ, both forgiven by the same blood that was shed at Golgotha. Then it says in Zechariah 14, it says, They will then ask him, the Jews will then ask him, What are those wounds on your arms? Mm. And he will say, oh, these I suffered in the house of my friends. See, this was such an important thing to recognize. Do you recognize who Jesus is, right? They will recognize him because they will look on him whom they have pierced and recognize that it was him who came those years ago. So the the Messiah, Jesus confronted the, the, the Jewish leaders of his day. He saw some Pharisees and he came up to them and he said, I have a question the Messiah, whose son will he be? They said, David's. He will be David's son, which is right. The Messiah is called the son of David. Jesus then said, well, then how is it that speaking by the spirit of God, David said, and he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How is it that David, speaking by the Spirit of God, calls him Lord, Mm -hmm. if he's the son of David? And then the Scripture says, they didn't have an answer. And no one dared venture him a question anymore. That's such a powerful understanding. He is, in fact, the Messiah, who will present himself with grace and mercy. They will recognize him, because he will come at the end of the age. But what we're seeing right now that's happening in the world, All of it is leading up to these latter days. What's happening with this move of the embassy uh, to Jerusalem is part of that because it creates, it adds to the conflict of the nations because that conflict is what brings forth the Antichrist. And when the Antichrist brings that covenant of peace, it will culminate in the return of Jesus Christ who defeats the Antichrist and all his armies.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Pastor Rich Jones, Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro. We'll be back and we'll wrap things up.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
0: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Welby O'Brien. The book is titled Practical Help and Personal Hope for Those Who Grieve. Sadly, we find that we grieve from time to time in the course of a lifespan, so we'll talk with Welby O'Brien about how to do that well. Now, we've been talking about uh, the events that are unfolding in Israel, and I guess my, my practical question is, as followers of Christ, as students of the Scripture, what, what should our response be? What can we do to cooperate with what God is doing in the earth, and in particular, in that region, as we watch the Scriptures unfold and we move toward that, uh, that return of Christ?
2: Absolutely. Excellent question. And I think we start with praying for the peace of Jerusalem. That's what the Scripture, I think, calls us to, and thus we should pray for Israel, peace of Jerusalem. But I think also, I think we have an opportunity to influence our legislators to make sure that we as a nation continue to support Israel going forward. Uh, This is such an important thing biblically, of course. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. It must inform our foreign policy. We must stand with Israel And uh, I think we have an opportunity to influence our legislators. Mm -hmm. Uh, Few nations in the world have the opportunity that we do to have a voice. Use your voice, O Christians, and speak forth your support for Israel. I think that there are geopolitical reasons. Yes, they're our greatest ally in the region, but there's a biblical reason. You pray, you support, you stand with them. But I think also, if I can add this, is to stay informed. Like follow the news, see what's happening because what's happening in the world right now is leading up to the latter days. We are seeing the signs of the times unfolding yes. thus read matthew twenty four matthew twenty five he talks about being ready matthew twenty five is particularly that 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 call to Christians to make sure that your life is ready. This is like a time for revival, frankly. Christians with any kind of discernment. They see what's happening. There is a storm cloud arising. There is an evil that is rising in this world. This is the time for revival. This is the time to get your relationship to the Lord right, because there are difficult days coming, and the center of it will be Israel. We want to make sure that we're standing on the right side of history, and we want to make sure we're standing on the right side biblically when it comes to our relationship to Israel.
0: You know, it's interesting. I cited a study that LifeWay um, Presented just recently that indicated that people have great admiration for the Bible, mm-hmm. um, but they 've spent very little time reading or studying it, and that 's true for those who self identify as christians what What happens when the church uh, when the body of Christ, when the individual believer jettisons the Word of God and accepts certain portions of it doesn 't really apply it to to life? what is the danger of our neglecting
2: time in the Word, which, which God has privileged us
0: mm-hmm. uh, to have access to.
2: Well, I think one of the greatest consequences to that is that the Word of God then no longer has the authority that it should have in our lives. The Word of God needs to have authority in our lives. So if God says, hey, this is where I want you to stand, that's where we should be standing. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, he who hears these words of mine and lives according to them is like a wise man who built his house on a, on a rock, on a foundation. Unfortunately, people are not hearing His word, thus they are not taking his word to to heart that's what he means. You have to live according to them. The word of God needs to have authority in our lives because that's how we are changed. The Holy Spirit empowers the word you know isaiah fifty five I did not send forth my word uh you know without that power, but I sent it forth to accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. And thus it has authority and it has power. It's a sharper than any two-edged sword. I could go on and on. It must have authority in our lives. And Christians that are neglecting the word are therefore, um, they're, they're falling into what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They're defining for themselves what's good. That's a big problem. Once we start defining for ourselves what's good and what's evil, we're going to find ourselves in deeper and deeper problems. We need the authority of God's word in our lives.
0: And how should we pray for the peace of Israel?
2: Let's pray particularly, uh, of course, for peace with its borders. It's surrounded. Little tiny nation is surrounded by enemies. And so pray for peace, particularly with those that are declaring themselves to be enemies, actively doing things to, to uh, bring this military uh, armament right to their borders. Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, Syria also— Praise God that Jordan's not involved, nor Egypt. But uh, uh, Iraq, there are many in Iraq, even though uh, they are now, quote, an ally of the United States. Um, Follow the news carefully with what's happening in Iraq. There was recently uh, an election, and this clerk is is no friend of the United States. So pay attention, because things are changing. Pray for the peace, particularly with those that are around uh, their borders. But even greater than that, what's happening in Russia? what's happening in China, all of these are going to become a major factor. So we need to pay attention. We need to watch what's happening. We need to pray and be very attentive to what's happening in the world.
0: I know that the the temptation is to be fearful about what's going on in the future. Mm -hmm. God has revealed things to us that uh, would naturally produce a level of fear On the other hand, we recognize that God is sovereign over the affairs of men, that he is, his purposes will be accomplished. How should we, and I I hate to use the word feel, but how should we respond as we move forward in faith um, to events that we're seeing unfold? And we know there are difficult days ahead.
2: Oh, that's a, wow, what a great question. The scripture says, God did not give us a spirit of fear. Fear is part of the nature of man, you might say. Mm -hmm. It's part of our human condition. It's part of our problem. The part of our sin
0: nature it's in, in our, large yeah, measure. Our
2: fallen nature, and therefore it's easy to revert to fear when you see what's happening in the world. But the Scripture says that didn't come from God. God didn't give us that. He gave us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. So when we receive God's Word, take it to heart, there's one of the benefits from it. Our faith is increased. Faith yes. comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. We need our faith increased because faith is the opposite of fear. Faith is the answer to fear. You mentioned that it's faith to believe that God is sovereign over the nations. That's exactly right. And that God is sovereign over the events that are leading up to the Antichrist. We know that the tensions in the Middle East are only going to get greater and greater. He prophesied to us that that would be the case. But he also tells us the end before there's the beginning, that there's a great victory. And that victory is in the name of Jesus Christ. So our faith is strengthened when we believe the Word. We need the Word. We need to have that Word written on our hearts so that when we read the news, we see what's happening in the Middle East, we see what's happening in Iran or Russia or even North Korea, Mm -hmm. that our faith is not shaken or that we as a people are not shaken but rather we're strengthened because we believe God's word and we know who the victor is at the end.
0: Amen. Well, pastor Rich, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I think it helps us to better understand what's going on in the world. And also to recognize once again, uh, that God is still sovereign mm-hmm. over the affairs of men, and we need not fear. Amen. Thank you. Uh, once again, want to remind you that on Wednesday, we'll talk with Welby O'Brien. The book is uh, Practical Help and Personal Hope for Those Who Grieve. On Thursday, Shanti Felton will join us. Her book is Find Rest, a woman's devotional for lasting peace in a busy life. All right. We're out of time. So um, we'll say goodbye. Uh, James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Thank you, James. I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook.